It's time for the only show where today's top mid-revenue cycle leaders share the personal stories, struggles, and successes that you won't hear on the big stage, but made them who they are today. Are you ready to go off the record? Here's your host, Brian Murphy. It's often been said that to be a good CDR coding professional, you have to roll up your sleeves and get clinical. If you code just what is explicitly documented, you'll miss opportunities. If you don't understand A and P and pathophysiology, you'll probably make mistakes. But what about those who take the opposite path? Katie McLaughlin became a registered nurse at age 23, then went back to school to earn her doctorates before becoming a nurse practitioner in 2007. Today, or at least until very recently, when her organization opted to discontinue accepting Medicare Advantage patients, she became Population Health Clinical Advisor of Clinical Documentation Integrity, Risk Adjustment, and Epic Informatics for Scripps Health. So it's a clinical path to coding and CDI, and more specifically, to risk adjustment, which we'll be talking about today. Uh, right now, she's looking for her next opportunity, but given her clinical background, coding expertise, EHR savvy, and above all, her passion and vision, I was very impressed with both of those attributes, Katie. I think you'll be landing well and very shortly with a, a very lucky organization. So it's enough build up, but I'm very pleased to have you on the show. Welcome, Katie McLaughlin, to Off the Record. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. I came across your podcast maybe a month or so ago, and I have to say that I've binged every one of them. So, you binged? Uh, <laughs> Listen, wow. <laughs> Some people may binge like Netflix, but I was binging your show, so I, I appreciate appreciate it. All right. Well, right now, my wife and I are binging uh, Ted Lasso. Yeah. Have, have you seen that show? I, yes, I love so it. I'm, I'm hooked. Don't spoil the ending. We got, <laughs> we're on season three, the last season, probably five episodes in, and it's it's such a great show. My husband's going to be Ted for, for Halloween, so. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. All right. Quick, quick, funny there. aside there. One of my friends went out uh, last Halloween as Ted Lasso. He was the guy who actually turned me on to the show. Yeah. And while he was out and about walking around, uh, he ran into someone dressed as, I can't remember her name now, the character, the, the, the young British yes. woman who's the love interest of uh, of uh, one of the soccer players. I, I'm, I'm forgetting, you know who I'm talking about. But anyway, the, the two of them were posing for pictures together in the street. He had two, oh, two well, Ted Lasso characters who never met each other before. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, again, so thrilled to have you on. We're 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 new to each other, so um, just want to actually just start with some questions about how you're doing. Um, I think you've got more free time than maybe you've wanted. Uh, so just just give us an update, Katie, on where where you are and 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 what you're up to these days. Yeah, I do have a little bit more free time. Um, like you said, with um, the changes that Scripps made, they closed the outpatient CDI program that I helped run. So. Um, my role there was eliminated, but um, like you say, I'm I'm I love change. I embrace it. Um, I may have more time, but I'm filling it up quickly with learning and networking, and um, just you know, be mindful to make the decision that I have, you know, for where I'm going to go next, purposeful and meaningful for me. So, yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear about the position being eliminated. It's part of the reality of. I mean, any profession, but healthcare and all the changes we're seeing and uh, Medicare Advantage is a moving target. It's growing, but I have read about some organizations that have opted to to move out of it for, again, reasons beyond your control, but 
Uh, you did some great work. Looking forward to dig into that today. And and uh, now I know why you were able to binge listen to all That's the episodes right. of Off the Record. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of back. Do, do you have any favorite episodes? I won't put you on the spot, but you listen. know, um, geez, like I I've liked so many of them that I've actually um, chatted and networked with some of the speakers, you know, on LinkedIn. And oh wow, uh, it's been a great a great place to meet people like the people that are doing similar work that I love and have passion for. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate it. Well, they're all good people. So if you, and I should say that to my broad, more broadly to all my listeners too, if, you know, if you guys ever want to hear from a speaker and you need an introduction, I'd be happy to do it. They're busy, but they, most of these, all of these guys just, um, I know them. So they, and they love to give back and that's part of who they are and what made them so successful. It's building that community and learning from others and, I'm, I'm glad we're building some of that here mm-hmm. on the program. So let's let's dive a little bit into your background, Katie. Could you talk, uh, give us maybe the the short to medium version of uh, your path into nursing and then clinical medicine, and now uh, ultimately into risk adjustment? Yeah, sure. Um, so, like you said, I started as a registered nurse at age 23. So um, back in 2004, almost 20 years ago, which seems a lifetime ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always knew I wanted to be a nurse practitioner. I worked as a tech in a urgent care throughout nursing school and had a role model of a female nurse practitioner there that, um, and I could just envision myself um, in her shoes. So um, got into nurse practitioner school right outside of my RN and decided to take a year off and um, joined UCSD um uh, um, in Hillcrest here in San Diego as a trauma ICU nurse at age 23. Um, and that was stressful to say the least, um, taking care of just these super sick patients, you know, these heart transplants, lung transplants, and brain surgeries and traumas. And, oh, gosh. Uh, that was a lot of, uh, stressful work at, especially at such a young age. Um, but um, from there, I went back to school to be an NP. So after the year off uh, working full time, I went back to school and continued to work um, and got my NP degree. So became a family nurse practitioner um, in 2007. Um, and I jumped into community clinic and primary care with that um, and decided to go back to school after a year to get my doctoral degree. So that was when the DNP degree was um, just kind of coming to light. So the doctorate of nursing practice, uh, more of a clinical PhD. Um, So I was the second cohort um, at University of San Diego and finished my doctorate in nursing practice in 2011. Um, And then in 2011 till about 2017, I worked in um, primary care, internal medicine. I was the sole nurse practitioner at an IPA group um, with five other docs and, um, you know, did everything from Medicare wellness visits to sick visits and HCC visits. Hmm. Um, was that the uh, first that, time you started hearing that that acronym HCC? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that was sort of when I first was introduced to HCC and risk adjustment. Um, I specifically remember sharing an office. I shared an office with this doctor, Dr. Brian Lenskis, um, who was a great guy. And I remember 
late nights when I was there charting, you know, after the office had closed, he would be getting some emails and queries from the internal auditors and he'd just be cursing to himself. And he would just say like, oh, like, I don't understand why they're not accepting my diagnoses. Um, you know, I, I'm claiming that this patient has diabetes, but they're saying because the A1C is less than 6.5, you know, it's not, but I'm managing them and he's well managed, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. So um, that was a real vision of, um, from the provider's perspective of, you know, um, risk adjustment. So that was sort of my first um, introduction to risk adjustment. Um, they did. So that group there did have some mandatory annual training that we would go to. And, um, you know, they would feed us and give us a big book on risk adjustment and coding one on one. Um, I, you know, ended up um, finding it in my trunk years later. And at one point thinking to myself, like, oh, I hope I never look at this again. I hope I never need to understand these HTC diagnoses ever again. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, it was right around 2017 when I met um, a colleague or another colleague through a colleague, I met Dr. Tom Carter, who was working at Scripps Clinic. And um, he was leading sort of the development of this pop health program at Scripps Health. Um, Scripps had signed a contract with a company to provide claims data and we didn't, you know, that we didn't have access to. And um, that was really the inception of our, the outpatient CDI program there. And uh, I guess it was really during that time that I recognized that I really needed to embrace these HCC diagnoses and risk adjustment, um, you know, diagnoses. So I, I, I guess you could say that that was when I, I may not have been, I may have been introduced to risk adjustment before, but that was when I accepted risk adjustment into my life. <laughs> you took the uh, the book out of your trunk and yeah. dusted it off or wiped off some of the axle grease or whatever and <laughs> got back to work. But that's kind of an inauspicious to be uh, beginning to this type of stuff, hearing from a fellow physician that you respect, kind of cursing under his breath about getting queries. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm always interested to hear about your, your take on that. Uh, you know, as a physician, maybe you've gotten queries yourself at some point, you know, we, I, I'm always speaking to the querier, not the queried. Mm -hmm. it, that's it's got to feel a little bit like you're being second guessed. It sounds like he was. You know, mm -hmm. I'm I'm managing the patient. Patient, I know what they've got. Why is this person asking whether this diagnosis is actually there? Um, but the more you learn, you realize it's it's part of the business of medicine. Yeah, and you know, I'll probably speak to it a little bit more later. But I I think there's so many guidelines that the queriers need to follow that yep. their hands are tied a bit too, right? So, you know, I mean, it may take a clinical perspective or a clinical trainer in order to help providers really understand that language or that, you know, what they're asking. So, um, yeah, I think that there's some, you know, limitations when it just comes from an auditor to a provider. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for catching us up to speed here. So you're a you're a again you're a provider getting into this space now, um, and I love the angle that you came at risk adjustment from. You know, coming mm -hmm. from that perspective, um, I've always said one of the things I love about this. A lot of things I love about this space. Um, I and I do. I, that sounds nerdy, but I I am pro risk adjustment. 
I know there are some people who are not. They kind of the Medicare Advantage leaves a bad taste in some people's mouths. We see, mm-hmm. you know, record profits and we see uh, denials of treatment. But the this theory, I think, is sound, right? You're like you're capturing all these patients' conditions and you're using that to keep them preventatively healthy rather mm-hmm. than waiting till they're admitted and paying for more expensive, you know, treatments at the, at the back end. Um, and it's also very creative. That's the other thing I like about it. This is still a new um, payment math- methodology. The, the ways to best capture risk are not settled and the people have different ideas about how to do it. And we're going to get into that a little bit, but you know, for example, who's to say that a provider legally accountable for rendering a diagnosis can't do this work? I mean, it's it's natural that they they could and do, other than maybe salary and not, you know, you, you have to be judicious with who you hire, but you certainly didn't let that stop you. Um, so how, how did you make that all work then in, in your role? Maybe kick us off with, again, being coming at this from the <laughs> provider side and, and mm-hmm. getting into this space. Yeah, so um, like I said, I was I joined Scripps Clinic in uh, 2017, and I was hired to in this really programmatic role. But I was hired as a provider to do these care gap visits um, for the Medicare Advantage population. So similar to what you would think like a Medicare wellness visit is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was really. Uh, one hour visit with the patient to accurately um, code and document their chronic conditions, um, preventative screenings, go through all those quality gaps. Um, it was at a, at the same time that that Scripps was transitioning into Epic as their electronic medical record as well. So um, not only did we um, uh, take on a company that was um, supplying us these claim data at this time. So, you know, using another company's platform to look at these claims data. And then me as the provider would plan ahead for this one hour visit with this patient. Um, And so it was, you know, it was a little bit of a juggle with, um, um, with reviewing this um, claims data and trying to figure out how I could, you know, make it work within Epic so that it's reported well and all, and in the end, making a really quality, meaningful visit for the patient. Um, right. It was just, that. that's, that's a lot of variables to have in mind. It's, it's, it's beyond just clinical care and treatment. I, although I am, but I, I've always said that this ultimately should be helping with those thought processes. Like maybe right. you're more, maybe you're more rigorous at pre-reviewing Mm -hmm. Uh, what the patient had in a prior visit than you ordinarily would have been. Absolutely. And in order to do that, you really need to be educated and trained in risk adjustment and HPC diagnoses, right? So, you know, um, I quickly realized that I needed to, you know, dive in deep with risk adjustment and really understand if I'm going to be accurately um, capturing these diagnoses for these patients, are these diagnoses accurate? You know, like, does the patient have complicated diabetes? Do they have um, immunosuppression? You know, what are the guidelines behind that? You know, the coder, the coders and auditors would tell me that if I did it wrong, but um, prospectively and being proactive, you know, I wanted to know what to put on the chart so that they didn't have to tell me what the answer was in the end. So um, I dove in and, and uh, learned all I could about risk adjustment. So, you know, networked, I actually went to the ACTUS conferences early on. 
um, which I found very, very helpful. I think I remember the early active symposium outpatient CDI. Yeah. Yes, in very 2018, cool. I think at that Orlando one was one of the first times I saw a little a little table there that said, you know, outpatient CDI, and this is new and upcoming. And I, and I might I have said hi to you there. I apologize, <laughs> but there's a lot of faces and names. So <laughs> yes, I remember you there. Um, yeah. So that's kind of where I I I I I knew that there was a space for providers to be um, educated, trained, really understand risk adjustment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I did. I just dove in yeah. deep, and then as well with Epic. So I also knew that um, Epic could do things, our EMR could do things that we weren't aware of yet. So um, yeah. I was fortunate enough that Scripps sponsored me to go back to Madison, Wisconsin, and I became certified in Epic as a physician builder so that I could really learn the language of Epic. And, um, you know, how do we want to get um, these tools and workflows to work best for our providers? Um, and how do we want to get this data you know, outside of this separate platform and into a streamlined workflow for our primary care providers. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get to that too, but, but first, so we took us up to about 2017, 2018 and around this time you said you had uh, a vision for prospective Mm -hmm. charges, which I love Uh, who has visions of, you know, sort of like a religious vision prospective yeah. chart reviews, but you know, yeah. I, 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 I was telling you Katie in the pre-show, I, I had heard of at least one other organization doing this at the time. So, you know, this again, new, it's much more common these days, but I think it was Oshner health doing a similar practice, sort of teeing up the provider about the diagnosis that the patient should be having the chronic conditions you'd expect them to be carried over and making sure they address them in the, in the visit. Um, but could you describe that vision you had and sort of how you put that into practice and as well as any, I like giving my listeners some tips, any, anything that you have found beneficial or best practice when you're doing these sort of these prospective reviews, any common deficiencies folks should be looking for clarification opportunities, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, after a year or so of, of doing the visits myself, so one hour long visits, I could only see so many patients. There was a couple other people doing the same. Um, we clearly proved that, you know, we could do these long visits and look at, at diagnoses ahead of time. And, um, but how could we scale that, right? Like how could we scale that to all of our primary care providers? Um, we had a couple ideas and pilots. So we, um, tried to scale it by everyone doing these one hour visits. So let's block off one hour for all of our nurse practitioners or um, all of our PAs to do this visit, these visits. So we held trainings, you know, and, and um, we taught them kind of risk adjustment one-on-one we blocked off their schedules, but that um, there was really a lot of pushback, you know, I mean, these providers were doing primary care. They were doing these sick visits. They were doing, this was kind of um, interfering with their day-to-day you would say. Mm -hmm. Um, and they weren't good at it, right? I mean, they they weren't buying into reading and learning all about the risk adjustment and coding clinics, et cetera. They they weren't interested in it. Yep. Uh, so we brought it. You know, I, I I I I thought for a long time about how can we scale this work with the people that are good at this work that want to know this work that are passionate about the diagnoses, risk adjustment, what's accurate, what's not. Um, and how to document well, but yet scale it to the to all of primary care. So um, 
I thought about it for a long time. You know, I would, I lived and breathed it forever. And um, it was around 2018 that really I came to an epiphany. Um, I would say that I do my best thinking in the middle of the night. I think some people are like that. I definitely am like that. Um, and for months I'd been working out in the process in my head of like how we could scale this. And then it came to me one night, 2 a.m. I woke up and I thought to myself, what if we, you know, I knew Epic now, I knew how to do things in Epic. How could I create these, like a report, let's say, and I could look at all the patients that are upcoming, these Medicare Advantage patients or whatever population you want to look at for eligible visits with their primary care providers. They're already coming in. And can I look at the suggested diagnoses or these inferred diagnoses ahead of time from this um, company that's given these to us or my chart reviews? And then how can I put those on the chart so that they're um, there for the provider when they see the patient? But not only that, that our alerts within Epic are triggered off of the accurate problem list on the chart. Hmm. Um, and that's sort of what my vision was. And I made, you know, scribbled some notes. And at 2 a.m., I, I, I constructed an email to a... Uh, Jeremy Church, who was our CFO at the time, and he was actually- wrote this email at 2 a.m. At 2 a.m., yep. <laughs> and I and I titled the subject, um, we need to talk, hashtag CDI. <laughs> <laughs> and it may have been a little informal for a C CFO email, but um that's just I, I feel I felt like I needed to get it out. I felt like, you know what, I have I have something. I need to talk to you about it because I think that this is where it's going and I need to figure out how to make this work. Um so uh, the next morning, you know, he wrote me back. All right, come come to my office. We'll chat. And um, I give them credit. They uh, Scripps was great at you know allowing me to kind of be creative and pilot things and um, think out of the box. And okay, well, well, what if what if you know what about this or that? And if that's if we're gonna do it that way, what about this? And show us the need and et cetera. So um, so that's what we did. I um, I. I, uh, this was actually like, you know, this was when a time when our visits started slowing down. Um, we had, you know, maybe gone through a lot of our list of patients that we were doing these long visits on and I had some extra time on my hands. So I, um, trained a couple of the other nurse practitioners that were doing similar work to me. Um, and I built all these workflows and tools and columns and, you know, with my kind of knowledge and epic, um, I sought out, you know, some other people in at Scripps. So, you know, the Healthy Planet team and the Epic team that was um, that helped could help us build some of this work. And that's what we did. We um, created a workflow on prospective chart review where um, we were reviewing these patients' charts ahead of time with some really strict guidelines on, you know, these are the diagnoses you can look for within a certain amount of time, and mm -hmm. the evidence of this needs to be here. Um, and that's Making sure they weren't those her. acute conditions that, you know, you wouldn't expect to see again in a, in a doctor's office that the OIG is now hammering organizations for reporting that type of thing. Right. And it wasn't yeah. only, I mean, by reviewing this prospective chart review is not only looking for diagnoses that you may be missing or opportunities that, you know, the patient may have. Um, but, you know, removing diagnoses that aren't accurate, you know, yeah. no longer has this or that. And so it was actually really supporting our 
risk adjustment auditor team too, because they were getting yeah. less queries and they were getting less um, in baskets, you know, based I love on that. And diagnoses. That's how it should be done. You should be not, not just adding, but removing. I mean, mm-hmm. the YG has really, if not come out and directly said it, inferred that in their reports that, you know, doing this type of work is fine, but it shouldn't just be one-sided. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you know you, it's about accuracy. That's really cool. So I, I hope your uh, CEO didn't check the timestamp of the email you sent at 2 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> but it's awesome that they listened and and the physicians received it well, you know, after you put together this process in place. I mean, it must have, like anything, it, it's going to take some time. There might be some resistance to it, but it sounds like it was uh, wound up being a model you were able to work with. Yeah. And the the physicians and providers were already seeing this work being done. So yeah. I was already doing an hour long visit on their patient and um, changing up their problem list to mo- the most accurate and specific diagnoses. So um, when they saw them next, you know, it was, it was very similar to the work I was already doing. It's just the fact that I, I wasn't the one doing the actual visit this time. I was just doing the, the prep of the problem list. Right. Mm-hmm. Um and Epic makes it so easy to make it have a seamless, um, uh, you know, workflow in that sense where um, it doesn't necessarily look like things have been changed or they don't necessarily, the providers didn't necessarily know that things have been changed. Um, they could look into it and see the overviews and the evidence of the problem and the history of, you know, what had come and gone. But um, it was really just, they really, the providers really recognize the support that they were getting with um, being able to manage their patient without having to um, clean up their problem list at the same time. Um, you know, if there was something acute that they were recognizing at the point of care at the visit, they would add it, of course. But um, for those chronic conditions, um, we were really able to support them with the evidence in the chart. All right. And you kind of teed me up on the uh, epic question. So I wanted to talk about that a bit. Uh, I know out of the box, Epic it might be getting better. And again, I'm not. I'm not an. I don't have access to Epic. I'm. I'm just a podcast host. But well, from what I understand, out of the box, it's not always user friendly when it comes to things like capturing risk. Um, and you obviously, you 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 already were just talking about it. You were able to make some changes. How was that done? Uh, they're they're a big organization. I imagine even despite that, they have limited resources. They can't. <laughs> They can't have every hospital tweaking it to their satisfaction, but you were able to get them to make some changes to ease that provider workflow. How were you able to do that? Did you have a mole inside of Epic, Katie, someone you knew? (laughs) Were they already perhaps working on this type of initiative and you were able to get them to um, incorporate some of those changes into into the way you work at Scripps? But just just talk about the, the technology piece here for us. Yeah. Um, so I think Epic had some risk adjustment or some, you know, structures around HTC diagnoses, um, in 2017 when, when we transitioned to them. Um, but I think over the past few years, they've definitely grown to recognize that, you know, that there, that there needed to be more, um, options and workflows and structure behind all their tools, um, but Epic's a great resource. I mean, there's good people there. We have a, a we had a TS that we worked with, um, a support person there that was always willing to chat with us. You know, as long as you kind of 
ask. You just need to ask and people and they'll help you there. Um, there's, we decided to be on like a weekly call with RTS so that we could say to them, like, this is what we're looking at. This is what we need. How can we make it look like this or that? Um, our Epic analysts that worked internally at Scripps um, were very close with um, the TS2 and, and, and we were just, they were really willing to help us a lot. Um, now moving forward, um, Epic has these brain trust meetings. So every few months they have actually a meeting where all people who are, you know, um, customers of Epic can kind of hop on for risk adjustment and talk oh, about that's cool. there. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't have otherwise known that, but um, I think, I think that's one thing that I really found in my research when I needed to find out more about Epic um, was their user web. So Epic user web, if you're a customer, you can create um, an account and there are forums on there and there are the community library on there where you can find work that other organizations have done. Um, and it's really about not recreating the wheel. I mean, working off of these other, networking with other organizations that are doing similar work. So um, I would definitely encourage people to um, reach out to Epic because, mm -hmm. you know, there's there's great work to be done out there. Mm -hmm. Does Judy Faulkner ever pop into these uh, work group meetings? She's the, she's the CEO of Epic. Oh, oh. <laughs> she's in like the Forbes, <laughs> Forbes 500 wealthiest people in the, in the nation. I wouldn't think yeah. she would. I went, uh, Matt, when I went to the onsite at Madison, Wisconsin, I think that may have been her family farm. I don't remember the whole history of it. Yeah. They're located, but it's an incredible space. Oh, you actually got out to the space itself. The, yes. the national headquarters. I've, I've, I've only seen it. Um, and it looks absolutely, it looks like adult Disneyland or something. Yes. It's futuristic. Something <laughs> you'd see on the set of Star Trek. It does. Um, that's pretty cool. Well, but it's it's good to know. I mean, and then there's a reason why they're the 800 pound gorilla in this space, and why they are taking up most of the market share. It's 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 not just they have better marketing or better salesmen, but they're responsive to clients. You know, they're having user meetings, they're getting you in, and they're they're making adjustments. They're realizing things like risk adjustment are getting much more important. And we, as a competitive advantage, we ought to be, you know, making our physician interface as friendly as possible in this space. Yeah. And I think to that point, as incredible as they are, there is a million different ways to do the same thing in Epic, which can be great, but it can also be a struggle for providers, especially in the risk adjustment world. So um, I think we had to learn that is that, you know, um, there's, you know, do we want our providers to be able to create their own note templates or do we want one structured note template that is going to encourage the best practice of documenting and coding these diagnoses? Um, so, you know, we had to do things like that where we created just one express lane for our Medicare wellness visit. We created one note template that was going to encourage this problem-oriented charting, which is the diagnoses that are associated with their evidence, um, the overview evidence of the problem, so that it would support their documentation of the problems. Mm. Uh, so things could like you, that, we really had to narrow that down. Could you give an example of problem-oriented charting? I, I, it, it sounds interesting to me, but I might need something a little more yeah. tangible to bring it home. Yeah, so problem-oriented charting is um, documenting your assessment and plan off of the problem list itself. So there's diagnoses that live on the problem list, let's say diabetes, 
and there's within Epic, there's two boxes. So there's your overview box, which is your evidence of the problem. It includes the history of the problem. It can be written in by anybody, specialist, et cetera. It lives with the problem on the problem list. Um, and then there's your assessment and plan box, which is empty every single time you see the patient so that you can create, the provider can create their current assessment and plan for that problem. And what our prospective chart review did, so um, either myself or um, later we had a team of RNs doing this work, um, is we updated that the overview with the evidence of the problem so that it would really support the provider's documentation of that problem. So let's say the, the provider is going to document on the patient's diabetes today, um, they would add it as a visit diagnosis and the overview would already have been updated with the most accurate, let's say A1C or medications or um, you know, last urine microalbumin, et cetera. And then the assessment plan box would just be empty for the provider to document their current status and plan of the problem. So it really supported, once it all got pulled over into the note, it supported um, the provider because half the work is already done for them, right? They've already created the assessment or the overview and the history of the problem to support the diagnosis. And then the provider um, only needs to create their current assessment and plan. And then within the note, it's all completely documented well. That's nice. Sounds mm -hmm. like a, just builds on its, uh, builds on itself nicely and captures it all in one. Um, I love mm -hmm. that. And, and it supports, supports the whole, the, the patient care and obviously risk adjustment at the same time. Yeah, and it really has helped the auditors looking back at these notes. Um, so many times in the past, providers would document on, you know, five different HCC diagnoses and then have a giant paragraph at the end that just said, you know, continue medicine, um, going to check these labs, but you never really knew what assessment and plan went with what diagnosis. So um, it really created a, a streamlined, complete um, note to um, that was audit proof, you know, looking back at it. I love that. Well, that's a great strategy for folks to take away from this. Maybe something they might consider implementing themselves. Is there anything in general, Katie, you think providers need to know most about risk adjustment, diagnosis, coding? I mean, given your experience here, um, you know, I'm, provider buy-in is always such a big thing. It mm -hmm. remains the number one problem um, on the inpatient side, obviously, but now in the risk adjustment space. And uh, how do you get them to recognize the importance? I mean, obviously, you you bought in from an early age. There was something in that in that old book in the trunk that gripped you. <laughs> uh, but if if you had to, if someone's listening here and they're and they're wondering, this this sounds great, Katie. I love the processes you've described. But how, how did you get your physicians to actually just make the final connection here and and start to buy in, so you didn't have to continually hound them to mm -hmm. to get this stuff documented. Yeah. Is, it, is it getting credit for the work? Is it quality? Is it the quality angle? I, I don't know what you think here. Yeah. Um, I think, I think it, what's worked best is to angle it in a sense of the, the, um, what, what the health plans need to understand the severity of the patient's illness. So it's, it's a different language, right? So the way the providers are seeing the patients um, in order to communicate the diagnoses or the health status of that patient, the provider needs to 
diagnose or capture the diagnoses um, and send it to the health plan, right? So mm -hmm. to us, it may make sense, but to the providers, they would say to me, you know, well, well, diabetes is on their problem list. Can't the health plan just look at their problem list? You know, they would say like, well, I wrote the word diabetes when I was discussing that giant paragraph in the note, um, but I didn't add it as a visit diagnosis. Um, so, you know, just to make it simple, I would say to them, this is a diagnosis. It needs to physically be as a visit diagnosis and be claimed with the appropriate documentation for the health plan to see that, right? They don't see that otherwise. And you're already doing the work, right? You just need to get credit for it. Um, and that's the way that you get credit for it. That's the way that you, that, that, um, they hear you, you know, hear you speaking is through these diagnoses codes being captured. Um, it took a it took a bit, and I know there was always a disconnect between the coders and auditors and our providers. Um, I I learned to really be the the um, bridge between the two. So mm -hmm. you know, when it came to all these queries, I would hop in, and you know, I would get cc'd on the queries to the provider, and I would say, "Oh, I see what you were meaning there." But this is the way that it needs, you know, you didn't add in this or it wasn't actually on a visit diagnosis. You just spoke to it. Um, and so I think sometimes providers want to hear from a provider in their perspective, too. Yep. And there was a lot of one on one peer to peer. Um, and I think that that really, really helped. Um, and incentives. We had some incentives, too. So paying, paying people to do some work really helped, too. <laughs> Absolutely. Make that part of their, their contract. Or, yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, good stuff. Um, you you touched on something earlier too that I I think is still an underutilized um, avenue in this space to 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 capture these diagnoses, get the whole patient um, seen every year. As we know, you know, face to face components part of this, getting them in annually at least. And what better way to do it than a, an annual wellness visit? Um, I know that again, I'm not a provider, but Speaking to you, it's these are, aren't always uh, looked at the best way from providers. Some people might see them as just extraneous or or not very effective and useful. But you were able to um, a get your physicians to to utilize the annual wellness visit, but also again use them as an opportunity to get everything documented for the purposes of risk adjustment. So could you? Can you talk a little bit about AWVs and how you're able to leverage them at Scripps uh, to your advantage? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the Medicare wellness visit, the annual wellness visit is a really great opportunity to, um, you know, create a meaningful quality focused visit, uh, low touch, high quality visit um, to really uh, address, document, um, create accuracy of the patient's problem list, their history, you know, maybe go through their advanced directives and preventative screenings, health maintenance. But um, yes, we struggled with that for years at Scripps, um, provider pushback. And um, last year, we really decided to take um, a big stand on it and create uh, and, and revamp our Medicare wellness visit um, workflows and our tools. Um, so we did it a couple different ways, but we revamped our Medicare wellness express lane so that when a patient was scheduled as a Medicare wellness visit and they were to come in to see a provider that the express lane would fire and it 
really is a is an order set that would create you know um, everything that the patient is entitled to that they are eligible for in terms of labs or screenings, um, and um, the annual health assessment. So that questionnaire that gets um, completed during the visit, we had that sent out ahead of time and we really streamlined that questionnaire. So it really um, limited it to only the questions that needed to be completed. If, it, if there was any pertinent positives, then it would um, cascade to another question. Um, we had a workflow with um, with outreach uh, staff that would call the patients if the questionnaires weren't completed ahead of time um, on uh, my scripts so that they could complete that with them over the phone before they saw the providers. Nice. Much of the providers pushback was that it just took so long in the visit. Who was doing the outreach? Did you have case managers on that or? Um, we had okay. medical assistants okay. doing that. Uh-huh. So they were able to go into the visit and complete the questionnaire with the patient if they if they you know if they were older maybe and didn't have access to the email or whatnot, um, so that the support was really at the point of care when the provider is seeing this patient that this questionnaire is completed and the note template that we that we created was really streamlined so that depending on the answers of the patient within the questionnaire, it allowed a list to pop up to um, encourage them to certain treatments if needed. So let's say if the patient is high risk for falls, you know, it had maybe it cascaded to what we were going to do for referral for, you know, gait stability or whatnot. Um, So it really took out some of the, uh, it really created an efficient workflow for the providers. and that that really helped. Um, along with that, we late last year we opened up annual health assessment clinics or Medicare wellness clinics internally within our department. So we embedded one dedicated nurse practitioner um, to see these patients um, and really support the providers. Um, with um, seeing these patients for a forty minute visit, um, either telehealth or in person and really creating that quality visit for the patient um, uh, to, um, you know, go over, to really create accuracy within their chart, um, you know, uh, updating the problem list and their history. And, you know, do we want to discuss your advanced directives today? And, you know, let's really create this five-year plan for you and how you can be a part of your um, treatment and wellness and, you know, take control of kind of your, um, what's going on in your life now and you're part of the team too. Right. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think yeah. that that was a really great, great um, push for us. Yeah. And that was one of your last initiatives, that internal wellness clinic. So this was like a, a standalone uh, this, this is all you guys did within this clinic were these particular internal wellness visits. That's all we did was annual wellness visits um, for wow. that department. Yep. To support the providers. Yeah, a lot of volume coming through there and 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 sounds like it was effective. Yeah, there was, you know, they saw maybe up to 11 a day um and telehealth as well. Um and then they also became, you know, subject matter experts in Medicare wellness visits. So when the providers on the floor were doing their own Medicare wellness visits, they were able to pop over there if they had questions or oh, you know, 
what would you do in this case, that case, or, you know, I, I, uh, let's say, you know, something about the note template or what they're eligible for, for their annual wellness visit. They kind of became an SME for those providers as well. Yeah. That is super cool. What a, what a great process. And again, I'm really sorry to see it all come to an end, but again, beyond your control, um, Scripps did not want to continue with the Medicare Advantage uh, contracts they had. So just curious, Katie, what 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 is next for you now? If you don't mind me talking about your your career, you've, you've got a little free time here. You're yeah. using it to learn. I am. To keep uh, keep growing as a professional, which I love. But do you have any next moves that you can, you can share with our listeners here? <laughs> you've yeah. got this great institutional knowledge built up, all these processes, uh, epic experience, obviously broad knowledge of HCCs. Um, so what do you, what's next for, for Katie McLaughlin here? <laughs> yeah, this is absolutely my jam. As you can tell, I, yeah. I love this stuff. And you know, when I first started at Scripps, I remember telling some of the other nurse practitioners there that were embedded in these pods, you know, these kind of care teams, they would say, Oh, you're doing the risk adjustment work. Oh, like, I'm sorry, that must be terrible. And they just felt <laughs> so bad for me. And I said, oh, you know, I, I really like it, actually. This is kind of where I'm going. Um, so anyway, as knowledgeable as I have been over all the years with all this work, I actually never did get certifications in, um, you know, my CRC, so my coding certification, okay. my documentation certification. So just as of last week, I passed the CCDSO um, certification. Oh, you did? Yeah. <laughs> That's not a gimme exam, at least the last time I saw her. It was a few years ago. Um, yeah, so I completed good that. For you. Yeah, I've got my CRC coming up in a couple of weeks. So I wanted just to, you know, you know, make myself marketable in the sense of my letters. I think that I'm, you know, capable and knowledgeable of it. But um, I got those out there. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking for, I'm excited. I'm really looking for kind of um, a purposeful career move, um, mm -hmm. you know, not just a job, of course, but um, something that's going to bring me purpose, something big, a great team. Um I'm excited. I think, you know, it, it'll come. I'm just yeah. waiting for the right thing. I think the sky is the limit for you. And uh, I love that finding a pers purposeful job. Why, why settle at this point in your career for uh, something exactly? Not, not that what you were doing wasn't rewarding. Obviously it was, you could do something similar for another health system, but, but yeah, take your, if you're able to take your time and, and land in the right spot with the right role. Uh, who knows, maybe an educator. I don't know. Again, sky's the limit for you. And I uh, also need to know what's what's in your playlist as you're sitting at home here and studying for the CRC and the CCDSO, because you, you realize what's coming up now is the hardest question people dread on the show is your, your I need I, your top song for our off the record Spotify playlist, Katie. So what do you what do you got for me? And I'm starting wow. to date myself now. You're actually younger than I am, and <laughs> I feel like some of my early guests maybe were more in tune with the '80s. You don't have to go '80s. <laughs> you can go yeah. '90s. Just just not much beyond that, if if you could. Yeah. After all my binging <laughs> um, of your podcast, I've I've heard a few different songs for sure um, named out there, and I know typically you ask for '70s actually, or you have been in the ones I've been '70s like '80s is is usually my wheelhouse. I personally think those are the two yeah. best decades for music in America, but you know, it's a matter of opinion. Yeah. So I'm going to go with um, an 80s song, but it comes from 70s singers of sorts. Um, so I'm going to go with 
Um, a, one of my favorites reminds me of back when I was riding in the car with my dad back when I was a kid. Um, the Traveling Wilburys, End of the Line. Oh, I know the song very well. That's one of my all-time favorites. So yeah, you got you got Tom Petty in there, Roy Orbison. Uh, that was a right. tremendous group, power group. Um, can't recommend. I, I I own their first album. I don't know if they ever did another, but great choice. We don't have any traveling Wilburys on the off the record Spotify playlist. So I will be very happy to add end of the line. And and that is the end of the line for this particular show. But Katie, it was awesome having you on uh, your enthusiasm, your ideas, energy are just off the charts. Again, I wish you the best of luck in your next career move, wherever it is. Keep me posted. Keep our listeners posted. Absolutely. I'll be happy and, to share that. Yeah. And um, to your listeners out there, I'm happy to connect too. If anybody's interested in, you know, chatting shop. Um, yeah. Where's the best place to find you? Is, is it LinkedIn or? LinkedIn would be great. Yeah. Okay. That's the best. All right. You can look up Katie on LinkedIn and that is going to do it for this episode of Off the Record. Just remember, if you did enjoy this show, I'd appreciate it if you can give us a, a five-star review. Tell your colleagues, spread the word. Let's keep Off the Record growing and uh, keep those guests rolling in. Thank you again, Katie. And for everyone else, we'll see you back here again in two weeks. Thanks so much for tuning in to Off the Record. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. We'll catch you in the next episode.